There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to game changers and change makers in the music and creative industries. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this final episode for Control Season 2, I'm speaking to award-winning screen composer and Prime Accord Production Music CEO and founder, Amara Primero. Originally from Perth, Amara studied classical music at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts before moving to Sydney and working in the contemporary music scene as a session musician and educator. Breaking into the world of screen composition, Amara has worked for major networks such as Channel 7, SBS, Channel 10, ABC, streaming giants such as Prime and for Reese Witherspoon's company Hello Sunshine. Establishing her own company, Prime Accord Music Production, based in Sydney and LA, Amara now leads a team of over 20 composers, creating library music, film scores and music for productions across the world. Winner of Best Original Music at the 2019 Los Angeles Cinematography Awards, she recently became an ambassador for APRA AMCOS. In this conversation, I ask Amara about establishing her own company, why she left the classical music world behind, the difference between the music scenes of Sydney and LA, and her take on diversity in the film industry. This is Amara Primero in Control. Amara Primero, welcome to the Control Podcast. Thank you for having me, Chelsea. I'm really excited to chat to you about your work composing for film and television and establishing your own company. But firstly, if we can, I'd love to go back in time to the start of your career. You studied classical piano in WA. What was this time in your life like? It was, look, I was young. And it was exciting and the world was my oyster. At that age, you know, I was, I was 18. So, you know, you're discovering yourself, you're discovering the opportunities, you're discovering what the world has out there for you. Um, so in a nutshell, it was a wonderful time. I felt like I had direction. Okay, so I felt like I had, I felt like I knew what I was going to do. <laughs> um, you know, piano, I had been playing the piano since the age of four. That was one thing I knew. I knew that music was going to be a career for me in whatever form it took. I also knew that I wanted to be a composer, but that was a little bit vague about the pathway on how I was going to get there. So at least I knew that music was my direction. So, of course, um, you know, I studied. I went on to university to study. I went to WAPA, uh, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and I spent a couple of years there studying classical piano. Now, again, because that's all I knew, so that's what I went into. I thought, well, I've been learning piano and classical piano my whole life, so it made sense for me to just go and do a degree in that. That's what you do. Exactly. That's what you so do. So I just went with what I thought, music is this thing that I want to do, so I'm going to do this. It's, it's what I know. I didn't finish the degree. 
So internally, my musical direction started to take, you know, a different path. I started to go down the road, uh, you know, personally of contemporary jazz. I was looking at songwriting. And of course, when you're at WAPA and you're doing a classical degree, that is very much frowned upon by all of your lecturers. Mm-hmm. You know, well, not all of the lecturers. I mm-hmm. shouldn't say that. There were some incredible lecturers there. But particularly a couple of the piano teachers I had over the time. You know, I remember getting a gig at a winery in Perth in the Swan Valley And it was so great. I mean, you know what it's like as a musician, especially at 18, to think you have a permanent gig somewhere at a winery playing your instrument. You think, well, this is great. Like, what a great start. And so I was really proud of it. And I remember going to my piano teacher and telling her, and she was a very, very classical teacher, Russian as well. Um, I'm going to figure she's not listening to this, so it's fine. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) But I remember telling her, and I was so excited about the gig, And I said, look, I've got this job in a winery playing jazz on a Sunday afternoon for three hours and they pay me for it and they feed me and, you know, they wait on me and I get to play music. And I remember the look she gave me. It was she was unimpressed. She she couldn't be more (laughs) unimpressed, actually. The look, the pursed lips. Um, If you've seen The Devil Wears Prada and uh, Meryl Streep with the character she plays, Miranda Priestly, that was the look she gave me. And it was a bit confusing to me because I thought, isn't this what you want for any of your students in the world is to be going out there and being able to share their music? But for her, it was a case of you're now not focused on classical, what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that might have been a bit of a pivotal point for me to then start to look into other ways of discovering my musical journey and seeing what else is out there because I started to come up against a few more roadblocks. So other opportunities were presenting in other areas of music, but they weren't aligning with what I was doing at the uni. So that's that was sort of my time at WAPA, which I learned so much, don't get me wrong, from some of the lecturers there. They were incredible. Um, I learned a bunch of theoretical knowledge that you cannot learn anywhere else in well, I shouldn't say you can't learn it anywhere else, but, you know, it's an institution that has a very high caliber of teaching. And so I did get a lot out of it. But at the same time, I think for me, I wasn't necessarily cut out for that that journey. Just a really restrictive way to do things, isn't it? That kind of mindset around if you're going to be a proper classical pianist, you must do this. I mean, right you know, you also need to pay your rent. Like to have a paid gig <laughs> is also part of being a musician so the idea to kind of scoff at that is it's also just a privilege to not have to work and to be able to just dedicate yourself to the hours of practice who can afford to do that exactly you know I sort of think well if anyone is doing music in any capacity that's something to celebrate if if you're a musician and you know that's where you want your path or what you want your path to be and if you have an opportunity to present your musical palette and skills in any particular way well then say yes, do it. You know, I was 18 at the time and um, it was a great opportunity. You know, I'd left school, first year uni, and to be sort of met with that, you know, that resistance was a little bit disheartening. But in many ways, it was the thing that sort of has shaped me and has continued to probably shape me every time I come up against those roadblocks with people in, you know, different, even industry now situations. It just sort of uh, creates a bit of a fire in my belly to accomplish something even bigger and better. 
So you went from WAPA, you then moved to Sydney and you changed track and studied contemporary music and performance at JMC Academy and started doing a lot of gigs. But why the decision to just fully leave classical music behind? I don't think I left it. Well, you know what? I probably did. I left it behind at the time. And it's funny when people say sometimes you return to your roots. I certainly have now, I think, with my career. I've definitely, I'm using all of those classical, you know, theoretical knowledge and understanding that I I learned in my sort of formative years. Um, So that's so important. But at the time, I did leave it behind, so to speak. And because it was about creating for me. You know, so some people are recreators of music. So I think in the classical world, there's a huge emphasis on recreating the music, recreating Beethoven, Chopin, Handel, you know, all the all the classics. And there are some exceptional recreators of music. It's a bit like, you know, in, in the industry when we say, you know, a covers artist, you know, they're incredible performers, but they do covers and that's what they love to do. And then there are the people that don't, necessarily feel drawn to you know performing covers and they want to write their own material and perform that and I think that's probably where I was was that I wasn't really I didn't see much scope in creating in the classical world as much um, because it was so focused on recreating and that's where songwriting and contemporary music there had this very improvised element to it and because of improvisation that's creating you know, on the fly. And uh, I think that's what drew me to it. And from that improvisation and that ability to have that freedom uh, around music, that's sort of been the thing that has led me then to the career I have now, which is, you know, screen composition, where you're constantly creating and you're constantly using those improvised, you know, motifs and improvised just toolbox and skills. So you were living in Sydney, you were doing a lot of gigs, but you were also teaching for a time in a high school. So what was that turning moment for you when you decided to quit the day job and put all of your energy into your composing? I can remember the day really clearly. It was a huge pivotal moment in my career. I probably took the teaching gig in a high school because it felt like the stable, responsible thing to do. I had spent so many years doing the gigs you know, live performance, songwriting, doing small bits and pieces, you know, here and there and, and doing a lot of a lot of creative work, but there was nothing really stable. And so that's why I took the teaching gig. And I thought, look, I can always continue to do my art on the side. And I hate saying that now, my art on the side, which really it should have been that I was doing my art first and foremost, and then teaching on the side. But, you know, like it's a natural progression for a lot of people, they end up doing their art on the side. So I did continue that. Um, But I took the teaching job, it was stable. And it's not to say that I didn't have some great times doing it, you know, there were some wonderful interactions with the staff and the students. uh, But I actually felt like I needed a little more of a challenge while I was there. Mm. And so I remember going, there's a whole lot of stuff that happened in between this, you know, over the years, but there was a a point in my teaching career that I thought, look, I really want to have a lot more responsibility and a challenge. So I'm going to go for a middle management job. And it was like a, when I say middle management, it was a year coordinator job. And I thought, that's great. I can teach and then I can be in charge of a year group and uh, it'll give me more work to do and more responsibility. And um, 
you know, I was really ready for that. Now, I was not in a cocky way, but I was so sure I had this job. You know, I thought, yeah, like they know me. In the back. That's it. They know me. They love me. They think I'm great. <laughs> well, I think they think that I'm great. And, uh, you know, I went up for this job and I was sure that I was going to get it. The assistant principal brought me into her office one afternoon. I'd just come back from year eight camp. So I was, oh my God, you know, being, being on a year eight camp, you know, with 13 year olds, you don't want to imagine. (laughs) Um, Again, it had its fun points as well, but you know, it's anyway. So I got off the bus. I'd been at year eight camp. I went into the um, assistant principal's office and I thought she's going to tell me that I have the job. This is great to go into my weekend with this news. I went into her office. she said all right take a seat Amara and she told me in a nutshell unfortunately you didn't get the job now in that moment I was sleep deprived I'd come off as I said a bus load of year eight students you know 100 and whatever 120 students um, you know four days in the bush with them and I couldn't probably control my my emotions that well so of course mm-hmm. I just broke down like I mean that's not me to sort of break down in in an, a moment like that in front of the assistant principal but I just I broke down into a puddle of tears and I don't know what she was thinking but I said look it's not even about this it's not really I'm, I'm not actually that upset and I couldn't probably put it into words and explain it to her or even explain it to myself at the time. But I think it was maybe there were tears of relief and tears of now is your opportunity to be able to go and really take a risk and do something different. So I stayed at the school, I think, for maybe another year, year and a half. I I can't actually remember now. Maybe it was two years. But all at the same time, I had made it my mission in that very moment when she said, you didn't get the job. I thought, that's it. I'm going to be a screen composer. That's it. That was the decision. I know this was a really long-winded story uh, to get to that point, but that was the moment. No, sorry you didn't get this job, and that spurred me then to go and actually fulfill my dreams. And so that's, you know, where every, every single day I look at what I'm doing and I think I'm so lucky, I am so blessed to be doing what I'm doing, and it was all because of that day. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen some other way, but I think sometimes life just gives you that, that push and that disappointment at the time and that's the kick you need to then go and spur you to the next thing and to go and really chase you know your dreams and what you're after yeah I guess it's just that sign or that moment that makes you go actually I'm not on the right course and maybe this isn't for me the teaching thing's really interesting and I know we were just talking about it briefly before we started recording just around this binary concept that a lot of musicians mm. go into teaching it's sort of when you tell people oh I'm going to go to uni and study music they go oh you can become a music teacher yeah just you know people don't often think there's so many other opportunities within the music industry more broadly this massive ecosystem of all the opportunities of roles that are music related and screen and film being one of them they're just not very clear pathways you know if you go and do a nursing degree you can be a nurse at the end and go work at a hospital like it's a very set path yeah whereas what we do you have to be entrepreneurial Mm. so you are an entrepreneur and you had that confidence to make that move so what was the process what happened when was the first time you had your music used in film and what did that feel like 
It was a bit gradual in some ways because I had a lot of gigs in TV commercials and um, internet campaigns and bits like that. So there was that feeling and, you know, even that was exciting. Anytime that any work that you've done appears on the screen in some form, it's exciting. Uh, but probably the time when my music was used in, in a full TV show, it was a cooking show. And that was the first time that I heard all of the whole show was my music. Wow. Yeah. And I think that was, it was fun. It, it was a different experience to when you hear your music in some form, like your song playing, a song that you've written and you hear it playing somewhere in a, in a public arena or you hear it on the radio or, you know, it's being streamed or something or being performed. It was different because it was part of a story. It was part of someone else's story. So you've got the, and like we were talking just before this, you know, your husband's involved in, in uh, the film and TV industry. So, you know, you've, you know all about the, the TV show is a story in itself. And then the music comes along and that's another story, but you put them together and you become connected to this bigger story. And I think that's probably the feeling that I had when I, when I first heard the music on the show for the first time, I thought, wow, this is a different feeling to just hearing the music stand alone. Mm. It's now with something, it's under dialogue or it's setting a, a scene, it's, it's setting an establishing shot somewhere, you know, of, of the Hunter Valley or, you know, sweeping plains somewhere in Australia. And you think this is a very different feeling because now I've got this visual with the music. This is, this is amazing. It made you, like it did, it made me feel something and not because it was my music, but just we all feel something. I think, you know, if, we, if we've got a heartbeat, we all feel something when we see, when we hear music and we see it matched, paired with, uh, with visual, there is just a feeling that happens. That's, that's the thing. You put the two together and they marry so well together. Yeah, that's where the magic happens. That is. Yeah, that's, that's it. So, and Chelsea, I've got to say that that feeling hasn't gone away. Hmm. You know, it's not something, and I think that's probably a good thing. And it means that you you should still be doing what you're doing. I think in any career, you know, if you still get that buzz, if you still get that excitement, if you still feel proud and really happy with the work that you've created with someone else or with another team, um, then you should still be doing that. You know, I think the day that I start to take it for granted that, oh, there's my music on TV again, oh, yeah, whatever, don't care. I think that's when I start need to start, you know, maybe reassessing and thinking well if you're not getting that same joy and that same thrill and and buzz maybe it's time to pivot in another direction it is really amazing though that synergy between moving image and music and anyone that's studied Mm. film you know that's such a huge part of it I always find it really interesting the process of filmmaking that music seems to be the very last piece of the puzzle and sometimes the director's wrapped the project has moved on to another project before the music's finished on the movie. And I think, what? Because the, the music indicates the emotion that you're meant to be feeling in that moment, right? Exactly. Exactly. I know what you mean. And I've had different cases where, as you said, you get a picture lock and they've finished the edit and then now you're brought on to do the music and they're usually in a rush and they say, we don't have very long at all. How fast can you do the music? Um, but then I think having worked with sometimes uh, producers and directors, uh, repeat clients, they have started to bring me on at an earlier stage in the process. So sometimes they might have, for example, a script and or they might have just an idea or even a pitch document and say, we're thinking of making this. 
do you have any ideas? Do you have any initial thoughts? And here are the characters or, you know, here if it's a documentary, well, this is what the documentary is going to be about. Have you got any thoughts? You know, can you start maybe developing a palette? And so when they bring you on at the early stage, I think that's a really lovely journey to go. There's pros and cons of both. Actually, there's not really any pros and cons. Um, There's probably just pros of both in the sense that it's sometimes fun to be brought on to a, on, onto a gig at the very end because it's kind of over and done with really quickly. <laughs> and then you think, oh, this won't take me too long. Great. You know, and then you're on to the next one. So that can sometimes be just a nice short little gig. And then uh, if they bring you on and the project is from the very beginning, if they say, here's the script, you know that you're going to be in for a long haul. And... It is kind of nice to be on that journey because then you have a lot of creative input along the way. And I suppose it depends on the composer. I personally like to be brought on fairly early so I can have that creative input with the director and the producer and we can have those musical palette conversations and we can try some ideas and, uh, you know, people can sit back and just literally there's nothing's been shot yet and they can just sit back with it and listen and think, yeah, actually I can imagine this really fitting with the show, with the tone of the show. So I quite like that process. And is there a lot of conversations around what they want it to sound like? Do people send you reference tracks? We want something that sounds a bit like this or some people just leave you completely to your own devices? Yeah, absolutely. It's always a different scenario. Some will be really, really specific about what they want. These, This is the tone, these are the reference tracks. Uh, this is a temp track we're using at the moment and everyone really likes this. And you know what happens there in that scenario. Everybody really likes the temp track. And so then you're thinking, well, okay, how do I do something pretty much when everybody really likes the temp track, what they're asking you to do is do an exact sound alike without infringing copyright. That's probably hard. That's the hardest case uh, to sort of work with. I mean, but, you know, you manage it. But the other scenario is when they have just a few, discuss a few different ideas. This is what we're thinking, but what were you thinking? You know, maybe you might have something else in mind. And they're lovely discussions to have with people when, uh, when the director or the producers are open to your side of things. That, you know, they might come out with, well, uh, we kind of want the score to have the instrumentation of x y and z you know and we don't want any strings you know i did have that once with a project and he said absolutely no strings i do not want any cello i don't want anything nothing at all and it was very very specific um like really specific and i thought and i respect that i thought yeah i and i think i was able to interpret and understand where he was coming from so when he said that what he was probably referring to was that he didn't want a lush, warm, orchestral feel. I think that's what he Mm. was after. Um, But then when I did start to put in some nuances of cello and I might have put it through a guitar amp or something crazy. You rebel. (laughs) Living on the edge. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I might have put in, uh, put a cello in and then put it through a guitar amp or something and he might, you know, he said something like, oh, that's a really interesting texture. I like that sound there. Not realising that it was actually a cello it was strings so they're sort of interesting sometimes it's interpreting when somebody says I don't want this or I do want this it's actually interpreting that and thinking okay do they really mean that exactly or do they mean something different so (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, the non-musician briefing a musician. Yes. It's always interesting. And in yeah. some cases, like I was saying, in some cases it's not a bad thing because sometimes you can kind of get them around to to a space where they think, okay, I actually quite like these suggestions or you're the musician, well, whatever you come up with. Sometimes if you're dealing with a, you know, the very, very opposite spectrum, if you're dealing with a director or a producer who has a lot of musical knowledge, that also can be challenging because right down to things, I remember getting a page of notes, which was wonderful in some ways, you know, that there was so much terminology, musical terminology. It's like, yeah, you're speaking my language. This is great. But then it was right down to specifics. There were sforzandos and there were crescendos here and diminuendos here. And if that C could be pitched by, you know, a microtone, wow. and you're thinking, this was, it was specific and, <laughs> you know, but it, it can both go both ways. I think there's no clear, I, I tend to go around in circles sometimes mm. when I do answer questions, but because you, it can go both ways, you know, it's not just this is the way it is or this is the way it is. There are so many different scenarios and I think that's, yeah. you know, people being aware that you will come up against so many. Yeah, I guess that's just part of the collaborative experience, right? Is trying yeah. to meet in the middle and ultimately you're both working to serve that same purpose of telling that exactly. story on screen. Yeah. Have you had any moments where you feel that the brief they've given you is not what you would put with that scene if it was 100% up to you? Or do you normally agree? Absolutely. With, yeah? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it though. I don't say it. <laughs> Yes, yes, there have been many occasions and there are two ways that you can approach that. Um, there's either just shut up and say nothing and just go with it or you can make it more collaborative and you can sort of, like what we were saying, putting forward some other ideas and putting forward some other options or a great one is delivering what they want and then giving them another option. And then having that allows them the sort of the choice. Like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I like what you did there. And that has happened mm. in a couple of cases for me. In fact, with most gigs, I will give them a few different options. So say if we're doing, let's just say, break down a scene, for example, and it's just, you know, act one or just you know, scene, scene one, act one, and we need a particular type of music. The brief might say something. The director said, this is kind of what I'm after. I will deliver that, but I'll also deliver maybe two other options also, or two other sketches at least, depending on, you know, the time frame. I think it's always good to over-deliver, give more than what you've been asked, and that way it kind of opens up a dialogue and a conversation. And what do those deliverables look like? Do you kind of submit sketches in a sort of MIDI format before you get musicians in to record them? Or is it hard for a producer or a director to kind of imagine how it's going to sound as a finished product based on a kind of MIDI example. Yeah, I know I just said there that I'll, you know, put together a few sketches. Often they're not sketches at all. They're the final product. <laughs> like pretty, pretty much, pretty much final. Uh, maybe not mixed yet or maybe not, um, not uh, mixed or mastered, but they are pretty much the final product because... I think that's the way the industry, there was a time once where composers could, like say John Williams, 
And I think he's probably the only composer left in Hollywood who can actually sit down at a piano with a producer and say, imagine this line, this is going to be the horn line. And imagine this, this is going to be the, <laughs> the, the flutes. And it's up to the director, say Steven Spielberg, who he works with you know, all the time, or whoever it is, to then just say, yes, I trust you. I can imagine, I can hear that that's what the flutes will sound like and I can imagine that they were, were the, they're going to be the horns or that's going to be the cello etc um, but you know anyone else in the industry if you're not John Williams has to produce a final product or a near completion so if there is a budget for live musicians then I will put together the as you put it the MIDI software instruments are incredibly sophisticated now that a lot of people have especially if they're not musicians, but even if they're musicians, because they're real live samples that have been recorded, sometimes they're so close to the real thing that it's very hard to even distinguish whether or not, depending on the instrument, whether or not it's a live performance or a sample. So in some cases, they're really wonderful and they can pass as the real instrument. But if there is a budget, I will put together everything out of the box, we call it, so software instruments, MIDI, I think the word MIDI sometimes, though, when we say MIDI now, we kind of think back to the 90s or something. And yes, these terrible, karaoke. Yes. And just for <laughs> everyone out there, MIDI is not like that anymore. MIDI are real samples. You know, they are live. The London Symphony Orchestra, for example, you know, you can, you can buy these instrument libraries that have incredibly sophisticated palettes of music and you pay, you spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for these uh, samples so they are high quality they're not those karaoke 90s uh, midi mm. tracks anymore so that's what I will put together I will use all this software and maybe a couple of live elements you know I'll record myself live on the flute or you know on piano or wh whatever it is to just lift it a little bit that will go in as the near final product to the director and or the production team and they'll have a listen to it and if there is a budget for live musicians that's when from there we take it to orchestration and then the orchestrator puts all the music, you know, puts all the parts together and then the instrumentalists will uh, record that after the fact. But in the majority of cases these days, uh, unless it's a film and a big feature film at that uh, or a big budget TV series, it will be expected that you are a one-woman band so to speak. So you need to have everything coming out of the box. And if you are to put any live instruments within the recording, that's up to me to then go and hire a session musician. So I'll, you know, hire a couple of uh, guitarists or if I need some vocals, I'll hire a vocalist. Um, the other instruments I can kind of put down myself. If I need a mad drummer, well, then I'll hire a mad drummer. I'm not going to try and attempt that myself. So they're the sort of the elements that I will do. Uh, but everything has to be sort of produced in a near completed product. So you're doing all of that yourself. You're doing the composing and then you're doing the recording, mm -hmm. you're doing the mixing, you're doing the mastering. Mm -hmm. That's mm. huge. I will send things off for mastering. Again, if the budget is really, really small, then in some cases you just do it yourself. But often I will send it off to be mastered somewhere, mixed, mixed. Mm, I can kind of do that myself. But again, it's actually really good to get external ears. 
it's really good to get someone else to do it because you've been so close to it and it's great to be able to just focus on the composing, putting it all together and then sending it off and having someone else's ears on the mixing and mastering. Yeah, because it's a complete different state of mind, also a composing yeah. state of mind to a mixing state of mind and you need to move on to, assumedly, the next project as well. Can you tell us the difference with writing for unscripted versus scripted television projects? Yeah, of course. Um Scripted, you will get usually a locked picture, so a, a picture lock, and you will score the music to that. So that's probably the biggest difference, uh, whereas with unscripted, it's usually, and this is, because, this is a difference between budgets as well, it's usually that you deliver a suite of music or a library of music or a catalogue mm. of music appropriate for the show, and the editors will then edit the show around the music or edit the music to the show. So that's probably the biggest difference. And the budgets play a huge part in this because budgets for scripted TV or scripted film will usually account for the fact that scoring takes a lot more time and work because you're working on, you're not just writing a piece of music with a general feel which is what you can do with unscripted. You can sort of go, okay, this is the this is the tone of the show. It's a competition show. Um, we're going to need a lot of EDM music. All right, get to work and start writing EDM music. Um, you have to take into account a lot of other things with scoring. There's hit points. There's there's moments of action. It is a picture lock, so nothing can be moved. You have to write with every single bit of you know inflection in the storyline, and that's that's more work and that equals more money. So with film and scripted TV, there's usually more money to account for that process. Whereas in the unscripted field, there's a lot lower, even it's a huge industry unscripted, Yeah. but yet there's just, the, the budgets are lower. The budgets are just so much lower than the scripted field. And uh, they have to sort of consider, well, we're happy to use, of course, they probably love things scored, but they have to just sort of consider, well, for that budget, we know that we can only get a suite of music or, you know, a, a catalogue of music and we'll edit it to it, which is not necessarily a bad thing either because it gives a lot of creative control and the editors then have a ball with editing the picture to the beats, you know, to the, to the moments in the music. There are edit points within the music as well. That's a whole lot of whole other conversation about how you uh, how you write music with the intention for it to be synced in uh, the unscripted world. That's a whole other ball game about how to write and the types of uh, you know frequencies to avoid and delivering with stems and mm. edit points. So that's probably for another day. But they are they are two yeah two very, very different, different ways. The way yeah the way you compose is just completely different. Changing track a little, can you tell us about establishing your own company? Yes, I can. That came out of necessity and it flows on really nicely from us talking about budgets and a lack of money in the unscripted world. It blows my mind that there seems to be, I sometimes wonder, is it that the budgets are low in the unscripted world or is it that they're just low for music? 
So this is something that's really interesting and I would like to crack that. <laughs> I'd like to crack that one. Well, I guess they're not paying actors, are they? So it's definitely a cheaper production all around. This is what I wonder sometimes. I think, well, but reality and unscripted and a lot of the unscripted stuff is on commercial TV and commercial TV has a lot of money behind it with advertisers, you know, Netflix and and Stan and all of those streaming giants, they have subscriptions, but there's no advertising. So the networks are still making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I could be I could be wrong. And, you know, please, network executives, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but they wouldn't be making this content if there wasn't money in it. So the money is definitely going somewhere. But one thing it's not reaching are the music budgets. And that is a very curious case for me. Daily, I am wondering this. And getting back to you asked, you know, starting my own company, it came from a place of rather than feeling frustrated, hearing all the time, because what would happen, I'll backtrack a little bit, what would happen is that I was getting uh, hired to do a lot of unscripted um, documentary series, true crime stuff. And companies had budget to pay me, which was great. And then after a little while, they were saying, we have some things in the works, but we don't have a budget for you. We'd love to use you, but we don't have a budget for music this time. And I said, so what are you going to do for music? And they said, well, we'll just use the libraries out there. There's, um, you know, a few big names, big named libraries. And I said, oh, okay, they're great. They said, but look, if you have music on the cutting room floor that you might have lying around that we could license for a little bit of money, that'd be great. And uh, fortunately, I did. And I said, well, look, I do have some things that might work and it's not being used. So sure. okay, it's going to cost you this much, which was significantly, significantly lower, like a fraction uh, of the cost of what it would be to actually hire me as a composer. And so they said, well, this is great. And then, of course, what would happen then is then another project came along and the same question was asked. And then it was asked by another company. You know, and, and so with all of these 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 conversations over time that I was having with people, they said, we're really struggling with music budgets. We just, the, they won't give us money to allow and accommodate for original music. I think that was the key, original music. They said, we want our own palette, but unfortunately we have to use the music from a library, which then we risk, we do this wonderful documentary on, I don't know, climate change, and then there is a risk that the music might turn up in some sort of crass toilet commercial. I don't know. You know, you know, this is, this is, that was a really bad example, but, but this is what they were sort of saying. We have to take that risk that this music will be just not turn up somewhere else, you know, and that probably is the risk that they take when they have no money and they have to use live music libraries because then they don't get their own palette. But, the way it was, that's just the way the industry was starting to turn over. And this is just, this has been happening for a long time. This has been mm. happening over the last few years, quite a few years. And so I thought, well, I could complain about this because I was hearing a lot of other composers, a lot of other musicians just harping on about how there's just 
just exactly that. No budgets, no budgets, no budgets. And they kept going on about it and they kept sort of, it became this sort of this angry fest, you know, the of protest, the not even a protest because, you know, musicians just get together and just have a good old, you know, bitch about things. <laughs> and I thought, look, I could do that or I could just maybe, if you can't beat them, join them. And I thought, so they're all moving to, these libraries which they can license these libraries I mean they're huge they've got tens of thousands of tracks in their libraries and they're licensing them in some cases for a few couple of hundred dollars and they have access to tens of thousands of pieces of music and I thought well this is just ridiculous but how can I try and bring a personal approach these companies tv production companies know me they've worked with me before if I had a library, would they use me? And it turns out, the long story short was, yes, they would. And they were, and they have been, and they continue to. And so it's what's grown from this sort of necessity has actually turned into this really wonderful, thriving uh, business and opportunities have come from it for other composers. So I've now got a team of 20 composers approximately uh, on the books that regularly write for TV briefs that come through. And unfortunately, you know, again, we are dealing, and this is something that I'm, you know, hoping that we can change collectively as an industry in the long run. But in the here and now, what's really nice is that we're now giving composers opportunities to write for these TV shows and have placements. We're competing with the big libraries in the world. These composers are having placements and they're earning quarterly royalties off the placements. And I think that's probably something that every musician, composer, songwriter, who any music creator would love to think that their music could land in a TV show, set and forget, it's on something on commercial TV. As I said, anything on commercial TV, Channel 7, they have you know big advertisers on there and that's how we make our money and royalties. Um, there's going to be residuals over time. If it's on a reality TV show, you are going to get quarterly payments you know, in the long run and it's going to pay off. So as I said, there's another side of that about upfront fees that need to change. But in the meantime... This is a wonderful workaround until such time as we can start to educate the industry and start to really budget because you need to be paid for the time you put into creating something. Royalties have always been there. That's definitely something that, you know, it's, that's just expected. Royalties are the way that, you know, they've always measured, um, you know, in income uh, off placements for the last, I don't know, 100 years or something. Um, but an upfronts used to be, you know, you get paid for the time that you put in, but now they're all disappearing in this world. And that's something that I would love to see changed. Prime Accord Production Music, as you mentioned, you have 20 composers from around the world. How are you managing the team? How do you go about working out who is the right composer for specific briefs? Yeah, well... Uh, it has grown to, I mean, 20 composers doesn't seem, look, it might seem like a lot to some and it might not seem like a lot to others. It is quite a lot to manage. Um, I have the help of a wonderful uh, A&R coordinator, Isabella, and she 
she's doing what I used to do when it was, you know, the company was smaller and I had fewer composers on our books and she has come on board. Well, she's actually been with me from the very beginning, uh, but she has taken a lot of the pressure off the A&R side of things. So actually liaising with the artist. So when an artist comes on board, well, she'll actually scout an artist as well. So she'll find, she'll, she's always got her ears and eyes open, as do I. Um, but if she does find somebody or if I find somebody, then she's the first point of contact that, you know, where they they communicate or she communicates with the composers and basically helps them get the the most out of their music or helps bring out um it's almost like her role as a bit of a producer I think that's what A&R is a lot of the time is production it's it's a type of producing it's uh sitting with the artist or it's you know conversing on the phone or over email and listening to their music and saying well this is the brief and uh this is so far these are the elements of the piece that you've written which are great or the album that you've written uh these are the elements that are working how can we sort of lift this to the next level or maybe there's a few things that we need to just modify in the track or the tracks in order to get it to a deliverable point to the production company i know before you sort of touched on royalties mm. i did want to circle back to that how do you track where all those funds are going? And when there's so many streaming platforms now internationally and shows are being moved from different networks here and there, what's that pathway in terms of tracking where the money moves? APRA are pretty good. APRA do their job really well in terms of, you know, keeping keeping track of everything, you know, keeping track of the cue sheet. I think cue sheets are key. That's probably the the most important thing is that we have to, where possible, get hold of the cue sheets, um, you know, and, and me personally as well as a composer, I need to get hold of the cue sheets to make sure that they're filed correctly, that all the information is correct, you know, with the composer and the publishing. And uh, APRA do their very best to make sure that it does yep. go to all of the corresponding... APRA sort of talks with other PROs around the world. They do a very good job there but I think the key thing is that a publisher is the most important thing to have and that's what I've done recently is I've got a publisher on board and the publisher then takes all of that stress off you of having to sort of go okay how many countries is this being aired in because in some cases a tv show might be you know aired all over Europe and in the tiny, tiny little countries, you know, and you think, I can't keep track of all of that. So a publisher, what they do is they take the cue sheet and they go and they disseminate it all around the globe to all of the PROs. And that, along with audio recognition, which isn't always accurate, I think the cue sheets probably do a better job in that respect. Uh, but publishers, you know, go out there and they just basically keep an eye on everything. I do sometimes wonder if everything is accurate and coming through <laughs> because there is a lot, you know, there's a lot of music out there. You know, we're starting to talk about thousands and thousands and thousands of, you know, different cues and, you know, around in parts of the world that probably I've never heard of. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll look at my APRA statements sometimes and think, oh, you know, we're airing something in Germany and Brazil. And, you know, you think, what's that? Like, I have no idea. And it's trying to keep an eye and, and think, well, 
what was that show and, you know, what was that cue? What was that song? What was doing that can kind of be a job in itself. But I think having a publisher has really helped. It's definitely helped the process of just being able to sort of put that trust in them because that is their job to find the music. Mm. Um, And probably as a songwriter, that's what you found the same thing. You just, you have a publisher and yep, that's your thing. My thing is to make sure that the music is created. And how do you know it's the right publisher for you? Look, that's a good question. I, I was adamant for a long time that I didn't need a publisher. And look, <laughs> and if my publisher hears this, he won't be very happy with what I say next. But I'm still adamant that I could possibly do this without a publisher. And I'm not saying that at all, you know, to to negate, um, you know, what publishers do, because I think it really depends the scope in which, you know, where you're at in the industry. I think where I'm at now, I do need a publisher. I think it makes sense. Um, I could do it without one, but it would be messy and it would be time consuming and it would take a long time. So uh, what happened was that my publisher, he he was he was sort of was able to sort of seek me out I think he could sort of see uh how my career was moving and and growing and he sort of approached me and said look I think you need a publisher and um I sort of said well of course you do you're a publisher of course (laughs) (laughs) um but I see now that it's been really beneficial because the administrative work has been taken off my shoulders. Like if you think about a TV show that has, okay, one one series, say, one typical four-part docu-series, you know, which is something that I do a lot of, uh, might have oh, a few hundred cues in it, 500, maybe more. That's a lot for one show alone to be registering yourself. And then to think you start multiplying that by, you know, 15, 20 shows a year, um, that's a lot of administration. And some of them are larger as well. Some of them are 10-part series. So then you're going to talk about, yes, repeated pieces within the series. So, yes, it might only be 800 pieces of music, but then they're all repeated. So then the cue sheets are enormously long. That's really hard for one person or even, you know, you and, and an assistant to do. So in that sense, the administration team within a publishing company is so great. They take all of that workload off. And I think that's probably what my publisher, Matt, you know, was able to convince me of, was I can take that load off you. And this is why you give them a cut as well of your publishing, is so that they're taking the load off you. Um, they're getting all of that work done. You can focus on the music. And also they're finding all of this this money in different territories in the world that you wouldn't be able to track otherwise. So that's how do you know if a publisher is right for you? I think you just have to go by gut feeling. Depending where you are in your career, I think, is a really important part. If you're early in your career, you certainly don't need one. If you've also just got maybe one or two shows that you regularly work on, so say if you've got one big reality show like The Bachelor and, I don't know, Love Island, then I don't think you need a publisher. That's, again, publishers won't like me saying that. But I think that's, I think it's really easy for you to track. That's what I think. But if you've got a lot of stuff, a lot of work out there, then definitely. Yeah, it makes sense. So Prime Accord Production Music is based between Australia and the States. Can you tell us about the music industry and the film industry 
in LA versus Sydney? What's it like going between those two spaces? Yeah, it's different. Like it's the same, but it's different. I know that's such a, a crazy answer, but the same in the sense that, you know, a production is a production. It's, you know, there's a beginning, middle and end and there are directors and there are producers and there's all, all exactly the same stuff that's involved in the production is the same wherever you go in the world. Um, I think the biggest difference, though, is probably the mindset I find that, and this is not a, one's negative than the other, really. It's more, we both have a different understanding or we're both in different places. Australia's in a different place than where LA is. I mean, LA has Hollywood. So I, I think we have to sort of consider that for a start. So they're dealing with bigger budgets. They're dealing with bigger celebrities. There's a lot more at stake. They're reaching a big global market. Australia, I know we're always talking about reaching a, you know, having a global market or making sure that our, our film and our music is reaching a global scale. Uh, in some ways, I wonder, I'm always asking these questions to myself. I'm always wondering why, why is it? Why are we not necessarily, you know, out there uh, reaching the same sort of capacity as LA? And I think it has to do obviously with the size of the productions over there but and the market but I'm wondering if it's the stories that's that's probably something that I, I do notice is that the stories that we have here are a lot more Australian focused and in LA there tends to be a little bit more of a global focus so you're reaching this sort of global market as opposed to I think we're so focused on us as a culture in some ways that we're almost getting in the way of ourselves with anything creative whether it be you know music or film and then the two entwined we can sometimes be focused on so much cultural stuff you know getting all of our culture in there Aussie vernacular and, and slang and these these aspects which on one hand could be enticing to the to the world but then on another aspect, it could be jarring to the world. And it's finding that balance. What I find in LA is that they're always, the, the conversations you have are always about how can we make this international, international. And I've even had that in a meeting, a couple of meetings. They've said, we want an international sound with the music. And I think that's really interesting. We've never, I've never come across that in Australia with productions. A lot of the time it's, we want that really rural Aussie sound. We really want to encapsulate this, you know, it's, it's set out in Australia in the outback, you know, everything's set out in the outback or everything's, you know, we're really so focused on trying to get the world and, and rightly so, you know, we have a wonderful country, but we're so focused on all of these aspects of Australia that sometimes it, it can feel a bit limited then when it comes to then writing the music and then and other creative aspects, I'm sure, as well, because you're very focused on having to encapsulate that Australian sound, that Australian image, that feel, that tone that has to always have, you know, what is it that sounds Australia? What is it that sounds? We're always so focused on that conversation. And um, again, this isn't a bad thing. It's just an observation. Whereas I've noticed in LA, there's a lot more conversations about we don't want anything that is going to draw the audience out of 
the story in terms of making it sound too too much like a place. It's more about just the character and and I know this could be disputed, you know, someone else could come in and say, well, what if the character is Australian? What if the character has... There are definitely elements in there, but on a larger conversation, on a sort of higher level, a higher conversation, they're always very focused on not alienating audiences in the world. They're not saying, well, where's that American sound? Nobody's ever said that to me. We really need an American sound. It's, it's just, it's very different, I've noticed. What have the last couple of years been like for you juggling an international career and multiple time zones, dealing with the difficulties with travel and multiple lockdowns? It's been, look, work-wise, it's been fine, actually. I know a lot of people have had difficulties and I know that the film industry, you know, completely shut down. I think where I was in everything, I was on a couple of projects that had already filmed. They had already finished and they were in post. Mm -hmm. And I think I just you know, just by grace, I was in that sort of sweet spot where things had wrapped and there were a few other little bits and pieces like interviews that had to be, uh, you know, filmed with one of the projects I was working on and that was a little bit difficult for them. But for me personally, with the writing, the music part, um, that was really easy for me. And then, of course, we've got, you know, Zooming and conference calls and, and everything. That, I mean, technology in, in many ways saved us. You know, if we were to go through a pandemic, this was the time to do it because we have all of this ability to do things remotely. Um, and, of course, you know, sending music. I mean, imagine if this pandemic happened during the 80s where you had to send a cassette tape, you know, um, Actually, no, that wouldn't matter, pandemic or not. It just took a long time. Sorry, I just heard what I said then. A cassette tape in the mail, you know, it's going to take you two weeks to, to get to LA and for them to listen to it and then make notes and then hop on the phone and discuss things. So, um, yes, we would have managed in a pandemic fine in the 80s in that sense, but just the whole world was slow then. But in many ways, nothing really was delayed for me personally. But I do know that the industry was obviously hugely affected. I, I think actually it was after the pandemic where I sort of probably noticed a little bit of a slowdown after the pandemic. Maybe it was the fact that waiting on production, new things to film, I, I don't know, but that's where I sort of noticed there was a little bit of a lull was kind of at the end of last year when we were kind of coming towards the end of things. But during it, the peak of the pandemic, I was really busy at work and on a lot of calls and um, you know, with LA and, and that was look, look no different to pre-pandemic. Obviously you can't travel and I wasn't traveling to LA. So I have to ask, I read that you worked with Reese Witherspoon's company, Hello Sunshine. What was this experience like for you? Yeah, Reese is lovely. We're best friends and, uh, you know, we're going to catch up for lunch after this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> I could tell you were thinking, I'm, I'm not sure if she's joking. <laughs> I can 100% guarantee that Reese does not know who I am. Um, but, you know, her company is, is enormous, as, um, you know, people might be aware. It's, it was acquired by another major company for $900 million. Wow. Um, and <laughs> hey, that could be Prime Accord production music in a few years. It could be. It absolutely. You know, I hope so. And yes, yeah, so I guarantee you that Reese Witherspoon has no idea who I am, but I hope she does one day. And um, I hope she knows how grateful I am, you know, for anyone 
woman or man, it doesn't matter, for anyone to start a company and be an entrepreneur, you know, an artist. As you said before, Chelsea, artists are entrepreneurs. And, you know, to sort of on any scale to just be an entrepreneur and put something together where you're actually giving people opportunities to work in the industry, I think is huge. Absolutely. So, you know, on, on a small scale, if you are a, a you know, a, a singer, a songwriter, a composer, um, and you have an assistant and you're giving them work, that is an opportunity that you're, you know, creating because of the work you're doing, you're able to employ someone else and perhaps mentor them into the industry. Um, I look at what's happened with Prime Accord, you know, we're fortunately able to give so many composers opportunities to have their music placed in TV shows. And then I look at someone like Reese Witherspoon and I think, again, she has created these opportunities for so many people. She's, you know, created a space for female-led stories. I think that's been her huge driving force behind the company. And then also with the people that she employs as well, she does employ, there's a wonderful balance anyway between the genders and, you know, the whole back end of the company is just, you know, run by women, you know, vice president of this and the executive producer here and the head of this and head of that, you know, they're all just, you know, women just going to work, getting stories made. So I think, yes, obviously writing the music and, you know, having them as a client was incredible, is incredible. Um, But the other thing that that comes, it's twofold because the other thing that comes with that is then working for a company that you're actually inspired uh, by and you know everything that they do so i think that's been the other part mm. that you know come to the table with that and think well that's you know something that's not even about the music that we've been writing and the and you know the day-to-day production that's something else that's sort of the next level inspiration of wow you know this this company is really doing some good things and you know hopefully i can follow in those footsteps the film industry has done some excellent work in terms of gender diversity over the last few years particularly post the hashtag MeToo movement. There's been some great conversations around making film a safer and more equitable workplace, but there's still a long way to go. Have you had any times where you feel that you've been treated differently as a female in this space? You know, I'm fortunate, I think, and probably, look, I hope I'm not one of the few. I hope I'm not saying that I'm one of the few that I haven't actually felt any case where being a woman has ever affected you know me in this industry in any particular way Um, again I do hear stories about women saying that I just can't break the glass ceiling or you know there are so many men especially in the um, this sort of corporate side of things you know running the show I should say probably running the show or the composers I, I think I hear so many women say there are so many men in the industry, you know, composing. And that is true. That is a fact. It is absolutely 100% true that I don't know what the stats are right now, but there are a lot more. The ratio of men to women composing music is, is huge. But have I found it difficult or has, you know, being a woman, has that sort of kind of gotten in my way or... or have I felt like I've been treated differently in any capacity? Mm. Um, no, like honestly, not at all. Uh, I've been given, I feel like I've been given every opportunity that any man has. I feel like men and women alike have always given me time and they've always, I mean, if somebody's not going to give you time, you know, for a meeting or just listen to you or, you know, talk to you or 
it, it doesn't matter whether it's you know a man or a woman in in that sense they're just not going to do it but you know with the times where I've been heard and been given opportunities I haven't actually I, I wish I could sort of deliver more to this this no, I'm glad. I, I know, I'm glad that you don't have horror stories right. to share. Fantastic. <laughs> it, is a good, it is a good change. Um, one thing that I probably have a conversation with a lot of the time with women, especially young women that are such an interesting, you know, when you've got an 18-year-old, and this is something, you know, I, I really urge the, the 15-year-old, 16, 17, 18, you know, early 20s, when we've created in some ways this industry where they're young and assuming that they're going into a world and it's so important I know to be aware of what you're going into but then also they haven't had any experience you know with any sort of discrimination but we've created this scenario that young people are going to assume that they're walking into a world of sexism and harassment and that they have to be on their guard. And I think it's so important they do need to be on their guard. But, you know, anyone of any gender at any time should always be on their guard or, you know, should always just be sensible and should always be, you know, mindful of things and mindful of their self-worth and their and value themselves and their respect and, and dignity and, and these sort of things. But, you know, I also want to sort of point out that I think where there sometimes is an imbalance that I've felt, it can be that something may be innate and again this could become controversial so I'm really careful with how I put this but something that's innate in women and something that's innate in men I feel that men perhaps innately are able to step up step forward into things a little easier than women are we have a lot of imposter syndrome and self-doubt and we maybe calculate a lot of things and a lot of reasons why we shouldn't do something whereas men will step forward and not necessarily and again I do apologize for any of the men out there that think well no I have imposter syndrome and self-doubt of course we all do we're human I get that but there is some sort of like innate difference between us inherent difference between men and women and the brain and what goes on there um, you know the book men are from uh, women are from Venus men are from Mars is that what the book was I don't know I've never read it but it is true we are different creatures and so there is something about when men step forward, <laughs> mm. um, the odds are going to be in your favor. If you step forward, there's you've already increased your chances of getting ahead in the industry just by stepping forward because no one is going to discover you if you sit back. And I suppose that's kind of what I've done is I've done, you know, women will say, well, how did you get the connections or how did you get into the industry or how did you how did how why is it that people know you and um because I got on a plane and I went to LA this is just you know for an example I took the club sandwich at lunch I had the iced teas I had the you know conversations I you know had the dinners I did the handshakes I kept in touch I asked a lot of questions and I would ask and I would ask and ask and ask and ask and and not just necessary for work, but, you know, ask for advice, ask for guidance, uh, ask for help. And these people, I like to give credit to the human race that we just want to help people. And if you ask often, people will help you. If you ask and you 
you know, you, you're, you're also mindful of situations mm. and you don't put yourself in a situation where you potentially might be. And I'm not trying to say that it's always our responsibility to be on guard. Yes, of course, you know, when sexual harassment cases, you know, come up, it's, of course, the other person's party, you know, but you're always going to get the other person is also 100% responsible, you know, for their actions. But the way I've sort of seen things is that that you're always going to get untoward people in the world in any case and either you can become a victim of it or you can just be incredibly mindful of a situation and you know really go with your gut and really owning your power and owning your you know power as as a person not just as a woman but as a person you know I would expect that the same thing would go for a man you know that you wouldn't you wouldn't put yourself into a position that you didn't feel comfortable with. And of course, there are situations we go into sometimes and we have no idea that the outcome is going to be, you know, as horrendous things have happened to some women in the industry and, and not just in sexual harassment. You know, I realise it's in other areas too. It's in, um, you know, bullying, just workplace bullying or, or, you know, just being undermined or being belittled, you know, these sort of things as well. It's all harassment. Um, but being incredibly strong in your convictions and, you know, self-respect that you as much as possible don't put yourself in those situations in the first place, then I think that also ties around to then stepping forward in the safe situations where possible, stepping up for an opportunity, asking for help, as I said, asking for guidance, then uh, nurturing those relationships and I think that's what I've I, I know I've gone on a little bit of a tangent there and I hope some of that has made sense but that's the long way around me saying that I haven't actually had any any issues and I have spoken to so many people that have said that they have and they find that the industry there's always the question why are there so few female composers in the industry and my theory is that I don't think anyone means to sort of put more men forward on projects it's not that it's just that maybe there are more men that are stepping forward for the projects I don't know um, maybe there's a way that we can as women step forward more and feel really comfortable and put ourselves into those situations to pitch for things I mean my company as I said I've got 20 20 composers 11 of them are women so for me I think what what lack of diversity, you know, it's, and they've all stepped forward. And I don't know, again, if they've stepped forward to ask because they see it's female-led. Maybe it Probably. is that. Yeah, Probably. maybe it is that. And that then worries me that women maybe are not stepping forward when it's male-led. I don't know. That's another sort of interesting question. Maybe we feel comfortable mm. with one of our own. I'm not sure. I definitely think the representation plays a part of it. I'm not sure if it's a, you know, I, I would definitely argue that it's more of a socialised thing than a, you know, biological thing. You know, mm. if you have only ever seen male figures in certain spaces, it's very easy to think that's not a space for me if I'm gender non-conforming or if I'm a female, I don't see mm. myself in those spaces. And I think that's true. that representation is really important in that way and the statistics are pretty brutal I think with APRA AMCOS statistics it's 
only 20% of songwriter members are female. Yeah. What's more disturbing is their annual royalties. I think only 10 to 15% of their royalty payments per year are going to female composers and that's worrying yeah. too. But I think there's heaps of fantastic female composers and songwriters. It's also about how they get their music out there and if you have all male, you know, A&R reps at labels Mm. making those key decisions about who they sign, radio playlisters that are male who mainly lean towards putting male artists on air, for example. Mm. It's harder for women to get that amount of exposure to start getting more royalties in the in the first place. So I think that's a it's a multi-layered, as you said before, onion of a... <laughs> of, <laughs> there's no magic bullet for no, any of these things. No, there is nothing. Exactly. It's so true what you just said there, Chelsea, about how when women just see perhaps men in these roles or when people I should say you know just see men in these roles you just assume then that this is not an area for me you know because as you said we've been socialized society has just that's all we've known and then maybe you're right the more that we start to see that like with Reese Witherspoon's company as I said every every leader every person that I talk to there you know seems to be a female you know I'm thinking wow like (laughs) these are this is this is a very, very balanced uh, industry. You know, the women are calling the shots here. Um, not to say that there, I'm sure there are, you know, men that are calling the shots as well, but that's all I've sort of liaised with are the women in charge. Um, mm. And so I suppose it does definitely create a, a sense of, well, this seems like the sort of company that I could align with because there's room for me. There's a space for me here. And maybe you're right. And maybe yeah, that's, that's why right. women have come forward to my company because they feel like there's a space here for them. Um, it's not, as I said, men come forward for the company too. But yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting point. I would certainly agree with you there. Yeah. I think that saying you can't be what you can't see is quite an important phrase but it's also about what happens when women do get into those roles and I think it was interesting if you read Julia Gillard's book that she wrote Mm. with Ngozi about women in leadership you know after Julia became prime minister it didn't have a flow-on effect of thousands of women going oh there's a female prime minister, I'm going to go into politics because no. we saw how she was treated and women went, oh, I definitely don't want to go into politics. Yeah. So it's also just not, there is no magic bullet here, um, but it's a start, it's a start. So speaking of APRA AMCOS, you recently became an ambassador. What are you hoping to come out of this partnership? I hope that, you know, I hope that we can get more Australian music to the world. Um, so coming off the back of what we were talking about before, about that Australian sound and everything. I'm hoping that we can get our music just just internationally sounding and internet, whatever that is, and internationally played. I have had, you know, a couple of conversations with some people there. I'm very passionate, actually. Obviously, coming from it from my point of view, from the production and the composing point of view, is that getting back to production music libraries, and I said that there are some big giants out there like Extreme Music, which is owned by Sony, and Audio Network, which is a huge, huge successful um, production music company. But the majority of their writers in their libraries are members of PRS, BMI, and ASCAP, and, um, you know, they're, so that's uh, UK and American writers. And 
what we're noticing, what I'm noticing actually on a lot of local TV shows produced here, if it's an unscripted show, the cue sheets will be filled with composers from ASCAP, PRS and BMI. And I think, but it's a really Aussie show and it's locally produced and that sort of mm. doesn't make any sense to me, especially when we're talking about how we want to be an exporter of music and we want to see those APRA royalties grow, uh, you know, globally as, you know, internationally played artists. And I think, well, that would be a really, really great start is if we could educate, and it's, it's, not, it's not even the TV production's fault, it's just that they don't necessarily know that there are other means of you know, music libraries out there. You know, there's obviously, there's my production library, uh, Prime Record. There's also some other uh, Australian-based production libraries as well. And they are, the majority of the time, it's not that we don't have international composers. We do. We have, you know, UK and American composers in our library as well. But the majority of our composers are Australian. And if we could get more of those composers into production or if we could get the tv production companies the editors to be using more of the locally based production music libraries then we could start seeing those changes happen and having uh those you know cue sheets filled with apra members and then those uh, productions being aired around the world so that's probably something that i'm incredibly passionate about doing is making sure that we're starting to you know really you know i suppose people say you know buy homegrown you know, start here first. And yeah, hopefully I can do some great work with APRA and that you'll hear more from this space about that. I've got one last question for you, which is what do you still want to achieve? Oh, I think Hollywood. Hollywood is, I know (laughs) it's, it's just, there are two things. So I want to grow this library, grow Prime Accord so that it is a competitor Uh, with Audio Network and Extreme Music. And yes, that's right, Audio Network and Extreme. I am coming for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So, you know, grow it. I see those companies, you know, as an inspiration. And so I would love to, you know, the thing I didn't realise when I started this library journey was how great it would feel to be able to give composers an opportunity to have their music placed on TV, to be that conduit between, um, you know, musician and the music they make and it being on TV and to be able to say, I love your music, let me place it here. And I think that's something I didn't even realise how good that would feel. That feels as good as when you hear your own music on a TV show, just to hear one of your other composers, you know, or an artist... And you get to say to them, oh, my gosh, your music, it's being placed in this TV show. Like, that's such a good feeling. So that's why, um, you know, I'm really passionate about growing this and, you know, growing the team. And then the other thing on a personal level is, yeah, writing for Hollywood films. You know, that's that's just it. Or, or TV shows. Or, yeah, that's the dream. writing for, you know, Reese Witherspoon's next, you know, scripted, uh, you know, film or... or um, TV series, you know, that is, that is the dream, um, or a Bond movie or a, you know, oh, something like that. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> that'd be so fun. So that's, <laughs> yeah, they're my two things on a, you know, professional level that I would love to achieve. Love it. 
Amara, thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea. You've been listening to Amara Primero in Control with me, Chelsea Wilson. For links to Primacord music and more information, please check the show notes. Well, that concludes Season 2 of the Control Podcast, and I hope you've loved the conversations. Please keep in touch and keep the conversation going at Control on Instagram or Facebook. And if you have a moment, please do leave a review. It helps other those to find the podcast. We'll be back with more episodes in 2023. This episode of Control was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, and I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners. I'd also like to acknowledge Melbourne Recital Centre, Quiet Riot, and all the incredible listeners that have supported the Control podcast. Thank you for supporting independent media and supporting women in creative industries. Until next year, please take care. Keep in touch. Lots of love. This is Chelsea Wilson signing off.